Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you again for tuning in to our monthly podcast. Today, we have a special guest, and it's a sincere honor to have Mersa Baradaran. Um, she is the as- Associate Dean of Strategic Initiatives at the University of Georgia School of Law, and also the author of The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, So I will say, in full disclosure, I'm so pleased to have you because it's been a long time coming. I was able to see you speak in 2017 at NYU Silver Institute Mm -hmm. um, and learned more about your your research. And your, your book kind of like speaks to our previous podcast where we had Richard Rothstein talk about the color of law and its impact on residential segregation, and then further its implication for the racial wealth gap. But Mm -hmm. you hone in on the policies specifically in terms of banking on how that has impacted the the racial wealth gap. So can you speak more about um, how we got to this point? And you also term um, the coin of uh, black capitalism. Can you speak Mm -hmm. more to that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I uh, Richard Rustin and I um, did an event together, and our books actually came out at the same exact time. Um, but we didn't know of the other book, um, mm-hmm. and it's such a it's such a great thing to have another you know um, take on this right from the housing perspective. And his his book focuses on, specifically on redlining, and mine is just a, it's a history of the racial wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's nice that the, that the issues are getting more attention after some time, I think, of scholarly sort of neglect um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and on black capitalism, yeah, I, um, I actually, it, this is Nixon's term. Um, and I just, you know, as I was going in the Nixon archives, um, digging into what sort of happens after civil rights, right? There's all of these demands for economic justice and for closing of the racial wealth gap and all the problems, you know, as I was looking at, through the history, all the problems that are here now, were there then, and there's a lot of people talking about them, uh, policymakers at every level, the civil rights, um, you know, actors in, at every level, and on each, all the sides of it, you know, so ML, uh, MLK's coalition and Johnson and, you know, um, even people like George Romney on the Republican side and Malcolm X and, you know, several others, and then you have, you know, the 1968 election, and Nixon comes uh, to power uh, I guess wins the, uh, the election um, based on you know the Southern strategy that we we do know about we we think we talk about um, and and the part that gets a lot of attention is this law and order aspect um, that he uses this sort of dog whistle to uh, imprison a lot of young uh, black men for you know uh, decades to come um, but I hone in on his what he does with the demands for economic justice. So, um, you know, people, you know, uh, that were asking for an end to segregation, not just to stop discriminating, which is a civil rights law demand, but to make make it better. You know, um, you have this, you know, centuries of segregation that has created this racial wealth gap, um, concentrated poverty, segregated schools, all these different, you know, avenues to opportunity. And so the idea is, okay, after hundreds of years of discrimination and state violence and and racism, then there, there has to be something done. And what Nixon does is black capitalism. Hmm. 
and he calls it that. Um, he calls it, you know, black power, black capitalism. And what he's doing is he's taking the language of the black power movement and, and really just subverting it and saying, okay, you want black power? Great. I'm going to give you black power. And what that means is he's going to maintain segregation because he knows that he's been elected off of an on an anti-integration plank. And, and so what black capitalism means is we're going to just give, you know, government deposits to black banks and, um, you know, little supports to black businesses, um, maintaining those segregation walls, no integration and no capital, right? Um, Hubert Humphrey is his opponent and he says, look, you can't have black capitalism without capital. And essentially that's exactly what he's trying to do. So, uh, you know, that that's part in the book that I, you know, I, I want to then follow through today um, because I think, in, in many ways, we have not um, emerged from that Nixonian construct of how to deal with the racial wealth gap. All of the solutions that were offered still fit into that framework. And I know we're going to talk about opportunity zones later, but that essentially comes comes into play as well. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So in terms of like LISC, you know, like one of our key strategies is around economic development and you speak to, you know, economic justice. And a part of that work with economic development is like working at the, the local level with small business owners, but then also in districts, getting people the, the resources that they need to actually move in terms of their opportunity level to the next level, whether that's in terms of housing, in terms of jobs and so on and so forth. And with, you know, all of the buzz that's around opportunity zones in, in your latest opinion piece in the New York Times, you know, you quoted that the neighborhoods labeled opportunity zones are distress because of forced racial segregation backed by federal law, redlining racial covenants, racist zoning policies, and when necessary, bombs and mob violence. And we're not necessarily seeing the um, those same acts in terms of like bombs and, and mob violence and, and similarly in terms of housing segregation. But all of these have a racial underpinning. And there's this intersection of race, class, and policy. Have we had enough of, you know, like driving this home? And what else should we consider when we're putting into the context of opportunity zones and our work in that space, given that intersection? Yeah, really good question. So, I mean, to, to focus on the bombs um, is, is, to, is to show how this was done before the legal system was able to do it much more cleanly. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, you did need bombs and violence. Um, when black families would move into white neighborhoods, their house would get bombed repeatedly. Um, and when, you know, they would defend themselves with their own guns, um, they would get sent to prison. You know, so, the, so there really was a, an enforcement of that racial wall. And it was about racism, but it was also about property values, you know, because if black people moved into a white neighborhood, that neighborhood was looked, looked to be in decline. And so you would have white flight. And so those white, you know, residents wanted to protect their property values at all costs. And so they would do these bombs. But after that, you know, uh, the bombs become uh, uh, messy and uh, illegal, and people get be- hurt. So then we have, you know, racial covenants and HOA um, uh, organizations um, and and zoning. You know, so you, so you can do now in law what you needed to do crudely with violence before, but you still have that. I mean, just today, there's two stories. Um, one was about uh, all these counties um, all around the country um, recently and, and progressing rapidly where their a white sort of district will, you know, uh, opt out of the area for the public schools and create their own 
county just so they can segregate their children and create a new public school away from sort of, you know, the black um, county. And this is happening uh, at a really uh, fast rate recently. They're saying since 2000, there's been like 73 counties that have, have just sort of seceded <laughs> from from that uh, broader municipality. And the second story was, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, they're talking about school segregation, and, and you know, you have a par- a white parents fighting uh, the integration of their schools. And this is in New York, you know, so not, we're not talking the Deep South here, and I live in the Deep South, so, <laughs> you know, um, this is in New York, and, you, have, you know, parents, uh, there's a comment, uh, uh, you know, uh, by a, a white parent saying, look, anytime we say that these schools aren't you know, something like good enough for our kids, you know, we, we get called to be racist. And, and, you know, someone I follow on, on Twitter, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, was like, well, who, who, whose kids are these schools good for? You know, um, so, so there is this subtle take of, you know, segregation still happening, um, but we're using different words now. We're using good schools. We're using, you know, uh, legal mechanisms of, of separation and segregation. And so when we talk about opportunity zones, we're talking about, generally distressed, formerly segregated black neighborhoods. And uh, we're talking about those neighborhoods that white middle class people, for the most part, choose not to live in. And however they're going to describe it, whether it's, you know, bad schools or criminal problems or whatever, um, it is still the case that black homes don't increase in value like white homes do, black homes in black neighborhoods, I should say. Um, it is still the case that those neighborhoods are deprived of, of capital. Um, so opportunity zones, the programs, and, and you know, organizations like, like yours, I imagine, are kind of working against this tide of market preferences, you know, for segregation, essentially. Um, but, you know, uh, in order to really turn those things around, and I think all of us would like that to, at some point, you know, um, to not have these neighborhoods um, for everyone's sake, to not have poor schools, uh, you know, that, that inequality that is so, you know, unjust. But how do we do it? Um, and, and to me, I think it's not, you know, outside investors that that we can rely on, but we need to have capital. We need to have those the equity in those homes um, increasing in value. Um, and, and so there, there are many ways that that can be done, but we really have to understand what what the problems are as opposed to just kind of denying (laughs) what they are. And I guess, Maurice, if you could weigh in on this in terms of what Professor Baradaran mentioned uh, about the capital, you know, like we're in a position as a CDFI to transfer assets or, or capital, but what does that transfer look like? And what role should we be playing with all of these things in consideration? Mm. Uh, well, first, let me say, Amani, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> right? Thank you. Uh, just, thank you. Just so folks uh, know, and Professor, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, thank um, you. Look, I, I think that when you think about the opportunity that we have to speak to or to attempt to be a part of the solutions to what uh, what the good professor here has noted in her book and what we're talking about now, uh, it's twofold. One, we ourselves can invest capital in the communities that are uh, disinvested and uninvested uh, and attempt to do good works there. But even bigger, and I think this is what the professor is alluding to, the, when you think of what CDFIs are... Uh, attempting to do, 
They're attempting to attract mainstream capital investment in these communities. And that's what we need even more of, right? We need to uh, be the catalyst for uh, the Bank of Americas and the Wells Fargo's and the Citibanks uh, and you name it across the country doing more investing in these communities. We also need to be um, the uh, an agent for helping communities in the or helping people in these communities get power to advocate for mm-hmm. changes in public policy because this won't happen unless we have both the capital investment from the private sector and frankly the capital investment from the public mm-hmm. sector. Mm-hmm. You need both and what we had the opportunity to do is to actually be a catalyst for both happening, right? So we go into these communities and take a first loss position, which is not about just our capital. It's about what us taking that first loss position can do to bring other mainstream financial institutions into these uh, communities. We also, though, work with the residents of these communities around political empowerment because it will require political empowerment as well to get systemic long-term change. I think that's You know, that's where we want to be as an organization, working in both or all of the above uh, areas to try to be helpful for places that, uh, as I think uh, the good professor is showing us, these places were intentionally Mm -hmm. discriminated against. These, These creations that we have were not organic. They are the result of human action, human discrimination. And it's going to take intentional action to actually have a chance of reversing or moving to a new chapter that's more prosperous. And um, do you have anything else to add there, Professor? Yeah, I mean, he, he's absolutely right. I mean, he's, this, it's not an accident. Um, and it's not, you know, it was uh, an intent. It, and it's not something that the the people living in those communities have done. I think some people say, oh, well, you know, it's all individual decision-making or, you know, uh, they just, you know, invested poorly or whatever, you know. Um, and all the data shows that that's just not true. You know, um, people save just as much. They invest just as wisely. It's just the the market, the mm-hmm. economic dynamics are different in those areas because of a long history of disinvestment, a uh, long history of segregation and, and, and of not having that, that capital and then the social capital and the, which includes, you know, schools and, and public, you know, uh, resources and libraries and, and, and parks and all those things that have not been built because of the lack of capital. And so there really does have to be a wholesale um, investment um, in those areas that that is geared toward the people living in those areas benefiting and not just the investors. Yeah, let me let me just add on to that. There is this, um, and I, I think it's an illusion, there's this illusion that somehow the American economic and capitalist uh, and corporate system is somehow divorced from the prejudices that exist in the people of the country. And that's an illusion. Mm -hmm. Our system from day one reflected the racism that was at the country, in the country from day one. And, And each interval along 
the pathway of the journey of this country, our systems have reflected who we are. Mm -hmm. And so um, there is this, um, we, we got to try to help people understand that the biases that exist in the country are in the fundamental systems that govern the political economy of the, of the country. Mm -hmm. And you will not overcome those or correct those uh, unless we, one, acknowledge that and intentionally attempt to perfect this union. And that's, that's what this journey is about. And I'm in full agreement with that. Um, I guess to kind of bring it home and touching upon the economic development uh, and justice piece, um, Professor, you appeared in PBS, their documentary on the black experience in business, and there is a certain nostalgia that some people are looking for that prosperity that once exists, you know, in, in Harlem, in the black Wall Street. Do you think that that level of prosperity is achievable today, and do you think that it could resurge within the the space of entrepreneurship? Um. I'm going to say no with caveats, um, be and because I don't think it ever existed um, it pros prosperously. I mean, I think what I tried to show in, in my contributions there and in my book is that you have, you have had some very skillful, brilliant black entrepreneurs and bankers over time, many, 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 who have been trying and have succeeded in, in parts in building thriving institutions in um, certain areas. Uh, these were mostly a response to Jim Crow segregation, so real hostility, right? So why do you need black banks? Well, because the white banks will not let you come inside. Um, money is not money is not money, right? As, as people say, well, money doesn't discriminate, but it did discriminate, right? You could not get a loan. You could not even put your money in a, black, in a white bank. So these institutions were formed in response to segregation, and they were formed by really skillful entrepreneurs. But often what you see happening, um, despite their best attempts, is that the broader outside community, when they're successful, the broader outside community gets resentful, and I'm talking about the white community, um, gets resentful. And, and, and there's either violence, as I uh, explained in the video about, with Tulsa, with um, uh, Wilmington, Delaware, there's several examples of just, you know, uh, sort of, you know, fires and, and bombs, right? you know, hostility, um, military-like violence against these successful um, places. And then there's places, you know, like Chicago that I studied and, and Durham and other places where you have individual discrimination. You know, Jesse Binga's an example of the most successful black banker and real estate entrepreneur in Chicago who was able to, you know, join the Federal Reserve. His bank was the only black bank um, that, that was a member, and he you know, put money into a clearinghouse, which was essentially FDIC insurance before there was that, so to protect himself against runs. And when his bank does suffer a run, the clearinghouse won't back him up. You know, uh, and 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 it was clearly racially motivated. This is in nineteen in the nineteen twenties, and and you know, so so you see these these indications of, you know, uh, the, the theory that well, wealth and entrepreneurship can counteract racism, and often what you see is the opposite is that racism will um, cut down your attempts at wealth. Um, and, and things are better now, um, certainly, and there are much less um, open hostilities um, to successful uh, black businessmen. Um, 
but um, you still do see a different, you know, a, a higher um, bar that black business. I mean, you have there that that you have to be twice as good is definitely still true in in business because it's just much harder. It's harder to raise capital. It's hard. I mean, look at this billionaire, you know, who just gave to Morehouse. Um, you know, he's, he's I think one of very few black billionaires, and he just dedicated forty million dollars to wipe out the student debt. You know, and 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 I feel you know he was also in that. Um, documentary that that we did for PBS and you know I feel um that there's there's got to be a weight on uh you know Mr. Smith that isn't on white billionaires you know to really um dedicate his money and and it's just so beautiful that he did and I love it but why are we not putting pressure on you know Jeff Bezos and all these other not that not that he did it as a response to pressure but 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 you feel you know as I read the the memoirs and and the writings of these black wealthy black businessmen throughout time and women um, most of their post success lives are spent in philanthropy to sort of build people up and and there really is a, a community effort at doing this and I feel sometimes like it's just not fair for that burden to fall on the few that succeed, you know, amongst the worst odds, whereas, you know, so many of these white billionaires are born with, you know, but born on third base. As Chuck Collins says, he's he's a white uh, sort of, you know, billionaire who started this uh, patriotic billionaires club forcing sort of, I guess, caholing um, um, billionaires to, to spend their money on philanthropic efforts. Um, so, so I wish that we would see more of that. And I, you know, I definitely get that that level of, you know, social responsibility. And I believe that as a sector, that's to echo what Maurice mentioned. That's what we're in the position to do mm-hmm. um, just as a CDFI. And I guess to kind of like end it on a more high note, because I definitely want to have a, a sense of optimism that, Yes, while housing segregation, uh, it's it's deep-seated as well as it is in terms of economics. What, as we press forward, uh, you autographed my book with Mm -hmm. the words, keep fighting. Mm -hmm. What do you think our fight is and what's an immediate step that we should take as a sector in that fight? You know, I mean, I think we all fight on different levels, but I I do believe that this is the struggle of our time, you know, uh, generally inequality, but specifically racial inequality, I think it is um, not going to fix itself. And so it needs people who understand the stakes and, and some of the solutions to fight on every different level. And um, I think that, that you know, uh, there's a lot of people who will uh, sort of scoff at, at the fact that they're, that this this problem still exists, so we took care of it a long time ago. And, and I just, you know, it really uh, um, could not be far, further from the truth. Like, there's so much work to be done. And so whatever your little sector is, I mean, you know, whether it's banks or, you know, businesses or criminal justice or housing or, you know, whatever it is, just pick an area and really um, dedicate your, your time. And obviously following the lead of community groups and, and studying it. And all, not all of us are – you know, I'm not I'm not someone who's an, an activist or can or is a business person, but I can you know read the history and and try to um, you know explain it in a way that I think will inform people. You know, and I think there's there's a lot of different places for people to to sort of um, contribute in in this. Maurice, do you have anything to add? Uh, I am optimistic. I know that's going <laughs> to shock you, uh, <laughs> but not look, at all. I I um. 
there is no question that we have a lot of work to do, but I think um, that one of our opportunities uh, at LISC is our role as an intermediary and our opportunity to bring together uh, you know, higher education and financial institutions and public policy uh, and health care and manufacturing and, most importantly, residents of communities that are struggling for the next chapter. I, I agree with the professor. I think the great challenge of our time is the fact that we don't all in any any close way share in this broadly uh, uh, or this prosperity that you're mm-hmm. seeing uh, mm-hmm. across the country and, and communities. And the question is how we get broadly shared prosperity. We won't get it unless we have multiple parts of the country, multiple parts of the business community and the public sector uh, working on this intentionally. I think our opportunity is to be the backbone for bringing together mm-hmm. folks from multiple sectors to say, we've got, in case you didn't notice, in case you were asleep mm-hmm. for a long time, <laughs> we are generating huge inequality in this country. And in particular, we're generating huge inequality um, that is really harmful in black and brown communities. We have to intentionally pursue public and private policy and practices that get at that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think our opportunity is to be the backbone for a coalition around that, uh, around the country. And that's what I get up every day uh, trying in some small way uh, to be a part of. So... uh, We'll get there. Yes, we'll we get will. there. I, I believe that we will as well. We yeah. gotta. I, I, and I agree. Say, I'm optimistic too. Yeah, I just don't think it'll solve it by itself. No, right. you know, I, right. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It, this this was not created Rated by itself. Exactly. It That's won't right. be solved by itself. I I, exactly. I agree wholeheartedly. And mm-hmm. and thanks, uh, frankly, to work like yours, Professor. And I hope that more folks. Uh, read it and know what it says and 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 uh, internalize it. I'm hoping that that kind of uh, education will help us to build a larger and larger coalition that gets, you know what, we didn't get here organically. We won't get here unless we're intentional or get out of here unless we're intentional. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to close. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, thank Professor Baradaran. Yes, um, thank you very for much, For all Professor. of those that are listening, definitely recommend the book, The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. And it was such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. you. Good luck in Irvine. Thank you. All right. <laughs> we'll Bye-bye. see you Bye. out there. Take care. Bye.